Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Vicki Vesaliga, and I will be your host for today's episode. With me today is Jenny Kale, attending emergency medicine pharmacist at Massachusetts General Hospital. In addition to the emergency department, Jenny also spends most of her time staffing in the neuro ICU at MGH. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Vicki. So let's start talking about today's topic, hyperosmolar therapy in the critically ill. So let's just kind of kick this off with why and when do we use hyperosmolar therapy? Sure. Yeah. So we use hyperosmolar therapy when traumatic or non-traumatic brain injury has led to cerebral edema, which is really just an abnormal accumulation of water within the brain tissue. So this accumulation can really be secondary to many different things. It can be from a disruption of the blood-brain barrier, from any sort of inflammation within the brain, vascular changes, or really any altered cellular metabolism. And so this increased edema or fluid inside the brain increases the intracranial pressure, which damages brain structures and can lead to poor outcomes in our patients with circumstances like traumatic brain injuries, strokes, or really any intracranial pathologies. And so therefore, we must act very rapidly to lower this intracranial pressure, which I'll refer to ICP throughout the rest of the podcast, while maintaining the cerebral perfusion pressure, which is really just adequate blood flow to the brain. So for acute elevations in ICP, this is when we administer hyperosmolar therapy in the form of either mannitol or hypertonic saline which has really shown great efficacy in lowering the ICP. So for the rest of the podcast, I'll really dive into kind of the logistics and the different efficacy of these agents. So I'm glad you mentioned logistics. Before we talk about efficacy and the different agents, are there any logistical elements in terms of storage and administration in the ED that might impact the feasibility of its use? Yeah, so there are several considerations for both hypertonic saline and mannitol. As far as storage, I'll start off with hypertonic saline. So the Institute for Safe Medication Practices really recommends against stocking these higher concentration hypertonic salines, such as the 23.4% on patient care floors, as having this concentrated electrolyte on the floor can lead to dangerous medication errors. However, if your facility is able to put into place measures to ensure adequate safety, it is allowed. But there are several less concentrated hypertonic saline preparations, including 3%, 5%, 7.5%, and several others that do have less strict storage criteria. Now, at my hospital, uh, Massachusetts General, in the emergency department, we do use the higher 23.4% in acute situations, and we do store it in our ED Omnicell, but we require a dual verification in which we verify as well as a nurse upon removal from the cabinet. Plus, the cabinet asks us a third question just to make sure we're sure it's the correct medication. As for administration of hypertonic saline, most guidelines recommend administration of any concentration over 2 to 20 minutes, with the 10 to 15-minute range really kind of being the happy medium. Uh, My institution used to administer the 30 milliliters of 23.4% over 20 minutes. But we did just update our guideline this year to allow for a more rapid push over 2 to 5 minutes. 
For some, this might seem rather dangerous, but we do have an MUE research project ongoing that we're collecting adverse event data on this rapid administration. So we'll, we will have data soon to see whether or not the change has been safe or not. As for mannitol, the biggest storage issue is crystallization. So really, the warmer the storage environment, the less precipitation and crystallization you might encounter. However, most bags will still crystallize. And so due to this issue, you must always administer the mannitol through a 0.22 micron filter with a recommended administration time similar to hypertonic saline being about 10 to 15 minutes. Now, ideally, we would administer all hypertonic agents and mannitol with high osmolarity through a central line due to really to avoid phlebitis and pain at the infusion site. But in the emergent setting, as we all know, peripheral access may be all we have, and so we really have to make do. And so I always ask our nurses to monitor the IV site for about 15 to 30 minutes post-administration to look for any extravasation or phlebitis. I also do want to point out that historically, many protocols included continuous infusions of hypertonic saline to target a specific sodium goal. But more recent guidance leans more towards symptom-based bolus dosing rather than sodium target-based continuous infusion dosing. So you mentioned both mannitol and hypertonic saline. Um, How do you make the decision? Is one better than the other to use? Sure. So that I would say that's a million-dollar question. Um, there's been many studies and meta-analyses comparing mannitol and hypertonic saline, and I would say the 10,000-foot answer is that there really is minimal data to, to suggest a meaningful clinical difference on outcome or mortality between the two. But I'll kind of get into more detail shortly in the podcast. But overall, I would say both agents have similar mechanisms of action in altering the osmotic gradient and functioning as plasma expanders. In terms of the osmotic gradient uh, mechanism, under normal conditions, the plasma and brain have similar osmolarities of about 290 milliosms per liter. However, following events that can lead to increased ICP, the blood-brain barrier is often disrupted, which increases the amount of blood that enters the brain tissue, which then increases the brain osmolarity. And as you know, this will lead to additional water crossing into the brain and resulting in the cerebral edema that I touched upon earlier. Now, these agents work to counteract this flow of water by increasing the osmolarity of the serum, creating the opposite osmotic gradient that allows this extra water to move from the brain back to the systemic vasculature. Now, there's some theories that the immediate decrease in ICP that we see after administering these agents is not actually due to this osmotic gradient, but rather due to cerebral vasoconstriction, as this osmotic gradient can take up to 20 minutes to actually achieve Now, the more rapid cerebral vasoconstriction is achieved by expanding the plasma volume with these agents. And when the plasma volume expands, its viscosity decreases, which leads to a compensatory cerebral vasoconstriction and decreased cerebral blood flow. Now, this beneficial plasma expansion may be more short-lived with mannitol as compared to hypertonic saline due to the onset of osmotic diuresis with mannitol that will lead to kind of overall volume loss. Now, furthermore, this volume loss may also lead to hypotension, which is quite a big consideration, particularly in early traumatic brain injury patients, as data has shown that early hypotension in these patients is associated with increased mortality due to decreased cerebral perfusion pressure. But I will point out that 23.4% hypertonic saline may also cause an acute lowering of blood pressure due to vasodilation. Another benefit of hypertonic saline over mannitol is that it helps correct and prevent hyponatremia, 
which is desired, as we have seen that hyponatremia with sodiums less than 135 milliequivalents per liter can actually lead to further increases in the ICP. And then finally, there is also the discussion of the reflection coefficient with mannitol, which is 0.9, meaning that it can cross the blood-brain barrier and lead to rebound elevations in the ICP. Now, this is likely more of a concern with repeat dosing due to potential accumulation in increased concentrations, potentially, of mannitol in the CSF. So I guess to kind of, a long story short, in my mind, I would say a hypertonic saline may have the upper hand on mannitol as it has more long-lasting plasma expansion and durability. It can correct and prevent the hyponatremia and has a reflection coefficient of one, meaning that it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier and potentially lead to that rebound increased ICP. This sounds like it's a really hot topic. What does the literature say about mannitol and hypertonic saline? Sure. So as I previously mentioned, there's been a lot of studies and meta-analyses performed over the last decade or, or so. However, these studies have consisted mostly of small sample sizes. They had heterogeneous or different brain injury populations. Most of the studies compared mannitol to lower concentrations of hypertonic saline, typically 8.4% or lower. And they really found minimal significant differences between the two agents. So due to the lack of findings, I won't really dive into these studies or these meta-analyses, specifically as foundations such as the Traumatic Brain Injury have published guidelines, the most recent being 2017, stating that there really is insufficient evidence from comparative studies to support a formal recommendation of one specific hyperosmolar medication. So I'm just going to highlight a few trials that I have most recently found the most interesting so Mangat and colleagues have published a few trials with, um, like I said, kind of interesting study designs and what I feel are really more meaningful clinical questions. The first study I'll talk about was published in the Journal of Neurosurgery in 2015. So this study looked at the cumulative and daily ICP burden after severe traumatic brain injury with mannitol versus hypertonic saline. So they defined cumulative ICP burden as the percentage of days the patient had an ICP greater than 25 millimoles of mercury out of all of the days that they monitored the ICP. And then the daily ICP burden was time per day that the ICP was above 25 millimeters of mercury. The team then essentially calculated an AUC. So of the 25 patients who received the hypertonic saline, 24 of them received 3%, and then one received the higher concentration of 23.4% as bolus dosing. And overall, they found that hypertonic saline bolus therapy was more effective in lowering cumulative and daily ICP burdens. So this study really shows that hypertonic saline is more reliable and has a longer-lasting effect or is more durable, as we previously kind of chatted about. The second article by Mangan and colleagues was published in February of this last year, and it compared hypertonic saline and mannitol on the combined burden of both high ICP and subsequent low cerebral perfusion pressure. So this is a very real clinical question as the ideal hyperosmotic agent with both lower ICP while maintaining or improving cerebral perfusion pressure because we don't want to decrease the blood flow to the brain. To my knowledge, really all studies prior to this solely looked at ICP independent of cerebral perfusion pressure. So this is kind of a novel study. And they found that hypertonic saline bolus therapy was associated with lower incidence and duration of the combination of increased ICP and reduced cerebral perfusion pressure in patients with severe TBI and intracranial hypertension. 
Moving on to the final study, I also found it interesting that Odo and colleagues observed that in patients with severe traumatic brain injury and elevated ICP who were refractory to mannitol treatment and then were administered 7.5% hypertonic saline as a second-tier therapy, the patients experienced a significant increase in brain oxygenation, improved cerebral and systemic hemodynamics, which really shows that potentially more of our brain injury population will respond to hypertonic saline rather than mannitol. So these are really just a few of the hundreds of studies trying to answer this question. And all in all, both agents are effective. Uh, and really the most important thing is rapid acquisition and administration. And honestly, many of you may work at an institution or an emergency department like mine where you are frequently asked by neurology or neurosurgery to infuse both mannitol and hypertonic saline simultaneously, which would uh, probably be another podcast all on its own. <laughs> Um, so you've mentioned here a couple of studies, and along with that, uh, a, a number of concentrations. What are the most common concentrations of the agents and the dose range used for those uh, concentrations? Sure. So there's, a, there's many uh, hypertonic saline concentrations available, and really the availability at your institution will be based on approval by your review committee. But the most common concentrations are 3% and 23.4%. For the treatment of acute elevations in ICP, the recommendation is to give 2.5 to 5 uh, milliliters per kilogram of 3% or 20 to 30 milliliters of the 23.4%. And then for the 20% mannitol, the dosing range is 0.25 to 1 gram per kilogram. Earlier, you mentioned talking about watching for extravasation due to the high concentration of these agents. How do you monitor these agents, and what is their duration of use besides monitoring for extravasation? Sure. So really the goal of these hyperosmolar agents is to decrease the ICP while maintaining that blood flow, as we talked about, whether this be until neurologic improvement or if there is any surgical intervention that can be done. And so uh, the duration of hyperosmolar therapy really differs based on the etiology of cerebral edema. So for example, Following occlusion of a large intracranial artery, so being like an ischemic occlusion, vasogenic edema typically begins within one to two days after the onset of ischemia and really reaches its peak within three to five days. So knowing this, you might be able to begin tapering therapy at that point versus in contrast with traumatic brain injury patient who might have extensive cerebral damage, they might have a more prolonged course of elevated ICP. And so hyperosmolar therapy might have a longer duration. So it's really patient-specific. But as for daily monitoring, you should continue to monitor the serum sodium, serum chloride, osmolarity, urine output, serum creatinine, and really any hemodynamic changes. Additionally, if you are utilizing mannitol, I'd recommend calculating the osm gap daily to determine really how much active mannitol is present. So previous guidelines had recommended it to keep osmolarity below 320 milliosmos per liter with mannitol due to the concern for kidney injury as increased mannitol may cause renal vasoconstriction. However, more recent guidelines have removed this recommendation as recent data does not demonstrate an independent association between the osmolarity and the kidney injury. So I would recommend monitoring the serum osm gap with a goal of less than 20 with the knowledge that gaps above 50 have been associated with renal injury. And renal injury is also a concern with hypertonic saline because of the hyperchloremia that could induce renal dysfunction. And it's common 
it is common practice at some institutions to target an upper serum sodium range of about 155 to 160 milliequivalents per liter and a serum chloride range of about 110 to 115 milliequivalents per liter to decrease this risk. But again, there's really not great evidence to to make this association, but some some teams will still target these ranges. Can you tell me a little bit about the duration of hyperosmolar therapy? Sure. So the duration, as I kind of touched upon, really depends on what interventions your patient undergoes and how effective these were at reducing the swelling and the clinical course of cerebral edema. So in patients who were able to undergo surgical intervention or in the case of ischemic strokes, maybe IA and the swelling, kind of the swell watch is lowered like the three to five days, you can start discontinuing therapy at that point. But if your patient, maybe they have increased swelling due to, let's say, seizure activity until those seizures are suppressed, they might have edema or someone with extensive TBI, your therapy might be on longer. So it's really kind of a day-to-day discussion with the neurology and neurosurgery and it's really patient-specific. Well, that's all the time we have today. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us to talk about hyperosmolar therapy. For our listeners, if you haven't heard before, I encourage you to check out ACHP's clinical resources on emergency medicine. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Recorded Pharmacist series, links to articles and guidelines for emergency medicine, and other practice resources. Thanks so much again for tuning in for today's episode. And join us here every Thursday. We'll be talking with ACHP members who are content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Be sure to subscribe to the ACHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.